You're listening to Members of the Jury, the show that takes you straight into the trenches of justice, where the passion, players, and consequences are real. Each episode, we examine current events happening in the system. From the battles in courtrooms to the streets demanding reform, we bring those stories here to you, the members of the jury, because we aren't afraid to take it to the box. What's up, members of the jury, and happy Freedom Friday. You know, in this episode, I want to talk about how convictions matter. As a public defender, we deal with a lot of clients who have a lengthy criminal history, and therefore, they aren't getting the benefits of sympathy during the plea negotiations or the benefit of positive negotiations or plea offers. However, we also deal with clients who are experiencing their first, second, or maybe third time in the criminal justice system. Maybe they're a repeat offender. Or maybe they face new charges each and every time. It's those who have little to no record, though, who will sometimes see a benefit during the negotiations. For certain charges and situations, having a criminal history or not, and what that history is, can have huge implications on a case. For example, determining to file a misdemeanor or a felony, or whether or not a case will resolve, and whether or not that resolution is actually amounts to justice. Fortunately, legislators and certain prosecutorial agencies have seen the undue hardship and lasting burdens criminal convictions can continue to have on those with them, even well after that person has repaid their debt to society, either by custody or probation. But recently, there's been a progressive movement and wave of diversion legislations that has been passed. In this episode of Members of the Jury, we will be exploring the different types of diversions, why they are important to the criminal justice system, what have been some of the pushbacks there have been from the courts and prosecution, and how we can overcome those pushbacks and obtain success. Joining me today in this, to take this matter to the box is Deputy Public Defender Michelle. Michelle, please introduce yourself to the members of the jury. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Michelle, and uh, as we've stated, I am a public defender. Well, Michelle, we really appreciate you joining on the sh- us on the show. We know that as a public defender, you have a wide variety of types of cases that you see and the difficulties in trying to find multiple resolutions on them. Why don't you give the members of the jury in this show uh, a little breakdown as to what criminal diversion is uh, as in a general sense, and then we'll start breaking down the specific types that exist. Absolutely. Um, so generally speaking, misdemeanor diversion um, is essentially a request to the courts to suspend criminal proceedings to allow people who are accused of committing certain crimes uh, to do, uh, for example, volunteer work service or counseling, or in some cases, just remain law abiding. And after a certain period of time, their case will get dismissed without them ever having to enter a guilty plea, without ever having um, to have that conviction officially on their record. And and that can be so huge with for a person who's been who has found themselves to be in the criminal 
justice system because whether someone is facing a misdemeanor or a felony that conviction can have long lasting consequences well after the actual consequence of that case and so michelle why would it be important or i guess a better question is what would be some of those collateral consequences that uh, a conviction can have and why actually getting your case diverted would be so important Definitely. And I think this is an aspect of our criminal system, especially with misdemeanors that oftentimes people forget. Convictions on your record um, typically come with probationary uh, terms or periods. They often come with hefty fines that can range from anywhere from $500 to over $1,000 that people just can't afford. And so what happens um, is for example, we'll take the financial aspect of it. These fines often go unpaid and then they go to collections and then that affects someone's credit score or it even goes to the IRS tax board. And now people, when they're trying to apply for loans or credit cards or housing even, they're getting rejected because of these unpaid balances and oftentimes people aren't aware of it. And so here these people are who are already most likely having a hard time financially, then not being able to get that apartment. And so, you know, what happens then? Are they're often left on the street or they're often left to um, stay, pay perhaps a housing situation, which they don't, it's not necessarily safe for them to be in, right? So that's just the fine aspect of it that I've seen a lot. But it's also just having a criminal conviction on someone's record prevents them from obtaining employment. You know, even if employees or employers aren't supposed to take these convictions into consideration to determine whether or not someone gets hired, uh, obviously employers do look at that and they can perhaps consider it. Um, Maybe that won't be the reason why they tell someone you're not going to get this job. But if you're going to have two applications of the same and one person has a criminal history and the other one doesn't, the likelihood of someone who has a criminal history getting hired over the one who doesn't is very unlikely. And so then that person is faced with a missed job opportunity. Um, And so it, it really affects every person's aspect of life from financial to employment that leads or bleeds into housing. And I've also had cases where people are unable to move up in their job Um, So they can stay uh, working at the same place for years and be unable to obtain a supervisory position and make that extra income to help support their family um, because of this criminal conviction. So then you're you're still facing the consequences of maybe a dumb decision or a dumb mistake that you made years past and you're a whole different person 10 years afterwards. And how do people come come back from that? They, They can't really. You said so many excellent points right there and made so many different thoughts and emotions run through my head. One one of the last things you just said was how, you know, literally a, a moment or or just a glimpse of time and making a bad decision could then have a lifelong effect. And I find myself telling the majority of my clients after getting to actually know them as a, the person that they are is that's exactly what the case really amounts to is that they made a dumb decision or a choice or bad decision and choice, but that doesn't make them a bad person. 
and, and you also highlighted the fact that whether there's a misdemeanor conviction or a felony convictions, there, again, can be lifelong collateral issues that are just very problematic and burdensome to people even well after they've made that bad choice and actually most likely rehabilitated themselves. I have had countless, countless clients talk about how they've had a job or got hired for a job, but then only to have two weeks later, they got fired from the job or their quote unquote services were no longer needed. And they're never really told why, but it, the only difference is the result of a background check. And so having legislators understand that and put into practice diversions has been a huge weapon for defense attorneys and individuals who have found themselves within the criminal justice system to to have a fighting chance to get out of that system actually unscathed. And, you know, one of my favorite judges, when talking about one of the cases, broke it down really beautifully, I thought. And it was, it, there was a back and forth and the prosecutor was really hanging their hat on, on getting the case to resolve in a conviction. And, and the judge paused and, and then stated that just because a case resolves in a conviction doesn't mean that case resolved with justice. And the opposite can be very true too. And and fortunately, that was a case where then diversion was granted. And I do believe that justice was be able to be sought. And and I honestly think that that's really is what the premise of diversion gets at to. It is trying to bring a case to a just resolutions for all parties involved. People will routinely think that, oh, if an individual accused with crime gets diversion, that the victim is then left on the side of the road and completely unaddressed. And that is, from experience, never the case. I, I mean, the case would never be fully deemed successful until that client was able, or excuse me, until that victim was basically put in the exact same position, if not a better situation than they were before any alleged crime had happened. And so, you know, you talked about um, diversion focusing on rehabilitative steps, and I thought that, that was a, a, a great point. Um, let me ask you this, you know, you had mentioned misdemeanor diversions. What are some of the other uh, types of diversions that you know exist that then can be specified? Yes. So uh, right now, before misdemeanor diversion was made available to us last year, there was also military diversion and mental health diversion, both of which have specific requirements to one, be eligible for, and two, certain elements have to be met before a judge can essentially say, yes, this person qualifies or this person's a good candidate for it. And I think that having the different, and let me know if you agree, having the different types of diversions is really crucial because especially as public defenders, the different types of clients and cases that we see is not cookie cutter at all. And so there, there would be no way just having one type of diversion would ultimately achieve, I think, the levels of success that the legislators are hopeful for by implementing the different types of diversions, right? Right. And so that's kind of the um, the change that we've seen in legislation over the past few years, which is great, right? Um, that's why we can argue to courts that this new misdemeanor diversion is one step towards ending mass incarceration and punitive justice policies. The 
for example, for military diversion, um, it's diversion that's tailored to help our veterans, right? Um, because this is a uh, community that often gets forgotten about. Um, it's often forgotten that these individuals who have served our country, who have sacrificed their livelihoods, their families, um, often come back with post-traumatic stress disorder that oftentimes goes untreated. And then they happen upon our criminal system by picking up certain cases. And with military diversion, we have to show that their um, PTSD was one correlated to their service, but also a reason why the underlying conduct occurred. And so that's a great avenue for our veterans. And again, that's specifically tailored to a concern as to why we want to address mental health when it comes to our veterans. And I've seen a lot of my clients be extremely successful on military diversion because um, they are not only told in court order to do counseling, but they're also provided resources and avenues to get that treatment that they they need, right? And they often times after a year and a half or two years come back and, you know, they have letters from their counselors saying, I'm, I, yes, this PTSD is always going to live with me, obviously, but I've learned the coping mechanisms that I need to address it. I no longer have to resort to substance abuse or whatever it may be to help cope with that. And then they go on and live really successful lives. And that's, you know, that's what diversion was created for, right? Now they don't have to worry about these convictions holding them back from their careers after serving the military. Those are, I think, excellent points. And I, I think I wanted to ask then, to your knowledge, is there any type of prohibition on anybody from, I would say, quote unquote, stacking diversions request and what type of benefit do you think exists with having that ability to potentially stack requests for different types of diversion? So the way that I look at the different types of diversions that are available to our clients is it goes from being very narrowly tailored to an individual and the specific issue that they have to for example, misdemeanor general diversion, where we're not saying this person has mental health diagnoses that need to be addressed or substance abuse issues that needs to be addressed. And so for me, it's kind of a like an upside down tunnel, right? You kind of tailor it to your client. Um, for example, let's say this person is a veteran and they do qualify for, mis or for military diversion. And for whatever reason, we don't get it that person is still qualified to and eligible to then run mental health diversion. And we say, okay, his mental health disorder played a significant part. And we have a doctor to say, yes, with treatment, this person can alleviate, you know, whatever concerns the, the court may have in regards to his conduct in the underlying case. And then the judge says no. And then it's like, okay, great. Now we have misdemeanor general diversion when a person really other than certain offenses that have been enumerated in the legislator can qualify. They don't have to, it doesn't have to be tied to a specific problem, substance abuse or otherwise. It can just be, you have been charged with an offense that qualifies for misdemeanor diversion and that's it. So for me, it's just us exploring all of these different avenues and really uh, making sure that we're advocating for our clients to avoid these harmful convictions that can really stray people down 
a path that they they shouldn't go on or that we don't want them to go on. And that it's tough to recover from. You know, I think that one of the biggest things that I love about the new misdemeanor diversion was the aspect of it being uh, pre-plea and that there wasn't this carrot in the stick methodology that, you know, in my opinion, is very draconian and old school way of thinking. You know, we see it all the time with especially the clients who have long criminal histories where they are now awarded what could be this new and mind kind of changing diversion. But because of their criminal history, they they are not awarded that that opportunity. And I've said it multiple times during negotiations that if an individual has a long history and putting them in custody over and over again hasn't changed anything, we're literally practicing insanity because it's doing the exact same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And, you know, there's no cookie cutter solution for anything. And so to act as if that for someone who has just found themselves wrapped up in the criminal justice system with super high odds of there being some kind of underlying other issue to, for them to just say, well, incarceration, incarceration, incarceration. Uh, I'm so happy to see the, the reform uh, in ideas to allow for, for this, because there's really, aside from the specific enumerated exclusions in the new California misdemeanor diversions, you know, simply having a criminal history is not a disqualification. Having horrible crimes, not even a lengthy criminal history, having really bad crimes on your criminal history is not an exclusion. And so I really like that when they implemented this new law, they were really forward thinking and they were moving away from the mentality of, of really allowing someone's past to, to shackle them. Would you agree? Absolutely. Um, and for me, when a prosecutor or a judge cites to someone's criminal history as not being um, eligible for whatever type of diversion, whether it be mental health diversion or regular misdemeanor diversion because of their criminal history, I find that argument so unpersuasive because if you look back at their criminal history, these diversion options weren't available for them, right? And so if you think if these legislations were in place back then, would they still have those convictions? And if you even ask yourself, the bigger question is, would they still be before this court had these um, you know, resources and uh, avenues for us to explore would this person and this individual be, you know, in front of the court today. Um, that's what I think is so great about uh, misdemeanor diversion and the lack of limitations that it has, because I truly don't think that someone's criminal history or even just the nature of the offense should prohibit someone from allowing them to benefit from this. I think I and the legislators couldn't agree more. When I was becoming familiar with this diversion legislation, I was able to do a deep dive into the legislative history and, and the way in which the bill ultimately got codified to me was really persuasive um, because at first the original bill had a, a higher number of disqualifying criteria that really still limited the type of offenses and individuals who would be able to qualify for this amazing opportunity. But ultimately 
by the time that they got finished with their pilot program in one of the counties in the state, they they realized that it wasn't achieving the type of success that they wanted to because it had all of those roadblocks. And so it was an amazing piece, in my opinion, of legislations uh, that allows for people uh, outside of that disqualified list to really get a, a chance to to make a better decision after probably making a bad one. And that pre-plea component of it to me is a game changer because it really it really has an impact on the mental state uh, and the ultimate success rate, in my opinion, of the diversion. So uh, I'm glad that we were able to discuss that. I do want to take a moment to say that uh, this episode is primarily going to be uh, focusing on the misdemeanor diversion path and, and legislations. However, if you do want to hear more about military diversion or mental health or even uh, certain drug diversions like a PC-1000 or Proposition 36, feel free to find us on social media, leave me a direct message asking about those, and I'll be happy to, to produce some content related to it to provide you with that information. Uh, also, leave a comment and a review on uh, your favorite podcast platform. So, Michelle, we've highlighted the purpose for diversion, and we've highlighted the different types of diversion that exist Now, let's explain to the members of the jury, how can a case actually get put on diversion? So can you give the members of the jury just a little bit of uh, background as to after analyzing a case and wanting to request a diversion, what's the process? Definitely. So you get the police report or sometimes even the complaint at, for example, arraignment. So someone's first court appearance. And, you know, obviously, depending on the offense, um, let's say the prosecutor wants this person to just plead to standard terms and conditions. Well, this person is eligible for misdemeanor diversion. So why would I why would that person sign up for a conviction when we can avoid a conviction at all. Um, So typically at arraignment, we see if the prosecutor agrees to essentially allow this person to go the misdemeanor diversion route. Uh, Nine times out of 10, they say no. And so we enter not guilty pleas on that person's behalf. And then afterwards, a formal motion gets written, essentially requesting the court, although the prosecutor is may or may not be opposed to essentially divert this person's case. And I should have started with that this was obviously going to be contingent on whatever jurisdiction or county one may be practicing in because, you know, the legislation in and of itself is very limited on the language on on how to to have this happen. You know, I, I think if you read the bare language of the statute, I think one could ask for it at the first court date and and, and not have to go through any any type of formality. And so I think it's really going to depend on, on your jurisdiction. I, definitely in ours, they have, they have conformed it to be a more formal process where there's, you know, somewhat of points and authorities, and then there needs to be some briefing with uh, attached exhibits. And I've, I quite honestly think that that somewhat has been a benefit, although I, I do think that there are some cases just so objectively on their face where it would be more beneficial to place a case immediately on diversion at the first hearing. You know, I would love to see that, and I think I've expressed it to you before, 
a diversion request, uh, basically to become part of an arraignment where, you know, at almost how every case, if a person's in custody, the prosecutor gets asked their opinion as to bail or not, you know, they should be asked immediately whether or not they think this case is suitable for diversion. And if they aren't able to establish a prima facie showing that for some reason, this is such a horrible case where that exists, then it, it shouldn't. And, and quite frankly, I don't even know if they need to do that because the statute has the state's opposition inherently in it. Uh, it literally says over their objections. And so, you know, I, I would love to see that that change to it to allow for more expeditious results and therefore quicker dismissals of a case. But, you know, when you talked about how where you practice, that that requires a, a formal motion. What does that entail? Can you give the members of the jury just kind of an insight as to the things that you're collecting and, and trying to incorporate in so that you have a better chance of having a motion granted? Definitely. So obviously, it's a very case by case basis. Um, there are some cases where um, it is a minor charge, there's no seriousness, there's no violence, there's no threat to public safety, you know, based off a police report. It's a petty theft. It's a, a case where, you know, it's violating a criminal protective order um, where there, there shouldn't really necessarily require a lot of mitigation to say this person has been charged with an offense that does not disqualify them. They have very little to no criminal history. This is a case that should be diverted. And then there are other cases that maybe this person does have a criminal history. Um, maybe the facts are a little bit more uh, quote unquote egregious for misdemeanors, right? That aren't, you know, DV or stalking cases or anything like that. Then I, you know, have a conversation with my client in regards to what I think that that person needs to do in order to essentially convince the judge or a prosecutor to give them the benefit of diversion, whether that's already starting or getting enrolled into counseling or doing community service, just to show some effort on their behalf to show that they're willing to essentially what they would consider earn a dismissal versus just given a dismissal. So it's really a case-by-case -case basis. And I do want to go back to something that you said, Lucas, about the formalities of diversion and the way that I think legislators kind of wanted this legislation to take part in. Um, I think when creating misdemeanor diversion, they recognized the amount of cases that the courts have regarding misdemeanors, right? If you look at a misdemeanor calendar, they can be enormous, um, not just in the county that we practice, but all over California. And not only is it burdensome to the courts, it's also burdensome to the attorneys who have to tackle all of these cases. And so I think part of the intent of this legislation is to kind of leave out those cases with people who do not belong in the system out the on the outside, right? Like the one, someone who doesn't have a criminal history, someone who's facing very petty charges. I think this uh, legislation was intended to uh, take them off a different path of of the system, get them out of this courtroom, come back in six months. And if you haven't picked up any new cases, if you've done volunteer work service and your case gets dismissed versus the way that it's practically working now where people have multiple court hearings, people have to take time off of work, you know, all of the 
burdens that our criminal system poses, especially on our low socioeconomic communities, I don't think it's necessarily playing out the way legislators envisioned it to be. And I think COVID, at least for me, really put into perspective the numbers as it relates to like misdemeanor cases and and felony cases, you know, just same period of time for lockdown that amounted to, you know, X amount of felony trials, but the misdemeanors was three X that. And, and, you know, you, you talked about an excellent point about the intent of the legislators and I think what they were really striving for when they enacted this law and I'm pretty sure somewhere in the legislative history, they uh, outright say it. And, and and two of the primary purposes were, one, to tackle mass incarceration because you have people who are serving months and years on consecutive sentences with misdemeanors that are now being housed in the same facilities for the same, if not longer, durations than some convicted felons. And number two, on the taxpayers – because one, mass incarceration has a huge effect on the taxpayers. And two, as to your point, each and every time a misdemeanor case is called, there are hundreds and thousands of dollars at at issue that, again, that's coming from the taxpayers. Because you have to pay for the judge to call the case, the prosecutor to prosecute the case. And more, 80, at least 85% of all cases go through public defender offices. So eight out of ten times... It's going to be a court-appointed attorney that, again, comes out of the cost of the taxpayer and not the person involved. And so th- by implementing diversion more and at an informal process more, it would actually have a more beneficial effect on society as a whole. So I just thought those were some like exceptional, exceptional points, Michelle, and, and, and really well stated. Yeah, and – I mean, I think the legislator also, by excluding the prosecutors entirely from the statute, acknowledged that what they do and why they do it is contrary inherently to the intent of the legislators, right? The legislators want to end mass incarceration. They want to limit convictions, whereas the prosecutor's office may have an interest in keeping their conviction rates because that's essentially how they get funded. That's essentially how they are able to appease the public, right? To, by promoting, oh, look, we have a 98% conviction rate. We're doing, you know, everything we can to keep the public safe. That's how they get the funding or keep the funding that they do. Um, But as soon as you get those conviction rates out or limit those conviction rates, you know, what's going to happen then? You know, they can't fall on these convictions to, you know, parallel public safety to these percentages. And so I think by excluding prosecutors out of the the system entirely and just saying, look, if a case is eligible for diversion, let's hear it. Let's not really address the prosecutor's objections because they can object all they want. It's going to be up to the court at the end of the day. So I think that's a very powerful tool that if used the way that it's intended to be used and used correctly by our judicial system, I think will make a tremendous impact on our clients who are facing misdemeanors' lives. 
and I also just think it's an enormous conflict. What like what kind of message is one saying to themselves? Like I'm going to issue this case for criminal prosecution, but it it should be diverted. You know, I I think that I I see some underlying aspects of that because potentially the the real habit quote unquote real rehabilitative process wouldn't happen on without the filing of the case, but. I, I think there's a lot of civil issues th- or civil remedies and routes that can be taken as well without the need of it going that far. Or even a potential warning letter that like, hey, unless this is resolved civilly, you know, then you could face criminal prosecutions. But so many times because people are basically uncivilized when, you know, a crime or alleged crime or a perceived crime may have happened that they just immediately, you know, call the police or and then call to the prosecution's office. And, and and we know that to be true, at least me personally, because I've had to tell so many people that, like, you know, it doesn't matter whether or not you actually want to press charges because once you call the police, it's actually that decision is out of your hand. And and that they hate that. And and, and to them now, it's they, they start thinking, well, I don't know if I want to call the police because I don't want them necessarily to, to be in the system to then face the repercussions. And it's, there's so many different sides of the coins that could then be ventured down. Whereas, like, now, great, thankfully, we have this outlet that, like, then even when that's the case, we can we can take that statement from that, you know, reporting party or that alleged victim and say, hey, their whole goal was never to have this person, you know, prosecuted and convicted. They just wanted some type of civil remedy of, you know, A, B, or C. And I think that goes to the public's misconception of what our justice system justice system actually looks like, right? I've had a lot of complaining witnesses say, well, I don't, I don't want him to go to jail or I don't want her to go to jail. I just want her to get help. I just want them to, you know, get mental health treatment. I just want them to address their substance abuse problems. And for whatever reason, they believe that the only way that people can do that is through the criminal system. And through this diversion and me running these motions and the prosecutor opposes it, I think opposing these motions, I think it highlights their desire for a conviction because a lot of the cases in which I've requested for diversion, they're not asking for any terms of and conditions of probation. They're not asking for my clients to do counseling or volunteer work service or anything like that. They literally just want them to enter a guilty plea. Whereas I'm fighting for my client to do counseling, have them do volunteer work service, have them address these issues that may have may have caused the underlying conduct, right? We're pleading to the court like, let's get this person the resources that they may need so that they don't come back. And the DA opposes that. And so what does that tell you about their desires and really where their true interests lie? It's not about seeking justice. It's not about, you know, adhering to what the complaining witnesses or the victim's desires are for this person. It's literally sometimes just we want this guilty plea on the record. And I wouldn't even say sometimes because... It's- I got myself thinking when I, when I get oppositions or when I hear oppositions, you're right. It's just most of the times it would be quote unquote unjust to let this person walk away from these charges without the conviction. And we know that when prosecutors really have an underlying desire, even when their initial request might not get granted, 
if it matters to them, they have a backup. You know, I think bail is a great example for what I'm trying to say here. It's, you know, we don't think this person should get bail, but if they do, we want X, Y, and Z release conditions. And you don't even see that in, I can't think of a time where I have seen that in, in an opposition to diversion. It's not, we don't think he should get it, but if he does, the term should be X, Y, and Z. It's, we don't think he should get it. We We don't. And if somehow the court can disagree with us, well, then we don't even we don't even know what we could propose. It's like them opposing for people to get released out on their own recognizance, but at the same time, be OK with them pleading guilty and getting out the same day. Right? Yes. Yes. You know, what is it exactly that they're looking for? It's definitely not to address any public safety concerns. It's to make sure that before this person leaves court, they have that conviction and I think that's inherent in our criminal system and the way that it's been designed and the way that it's worked for years. Um, but I'm hopeful that these legislations uh, kind of put an end to that. Yeah, hopefully, too, especially because one of the real sinister things that you hear, too, is, well, it's priorable. And it's like, you know, again, like their sole mission is like, again, it's not even the aspect of the conviction. It's that so that if he put he or she potentially does that again, then we can really go after them with a more harsher, you know, intensive punishment. And it's like clearly the goal is on punishment and not rehabilitation rehabilitation and it, w with every year i feel like you know we've gotten further and further away from that but fortunately you know with these diversion reform legislations that pendulum is starting graciously to to swing back the other way right and with parable offenses that typically comes with mandatory custody so that's what they mean when they say we want the prior is we want them to actually have to serve time the next time uh, they come back if they come back Exactly. Don't consider this these probation or alternatives to custody. You know, make them make them do the the hard time, and that's that's in my opinion just just a sad goal, quite frankly. Right, and you know we've seen that it just simply doesn't work. Um, right. People don't respond to being incarcerated. The traumatic effects that it has on someone's mental you know, well-being when incarcerated, especially someone who has substance abuse um, problems, especially someone who suffers from a, a mental illness, like that is traumatizing for someone. And that can really, really, really take them off, you know, a, on a path where if without intervention, there's really no going back. Totally. Totally agree. Well, you know, we kind of naturally, the flow of the conversation kind of naturally went into what was going to be our, our next conversation point, which was going to be some of the challenges, challenges and hurdles that, that we've seen with regard to diversion. And I think that we did a really great job of, you know, highlighting, you know, some of the focuses that aren't even really mentioned in the legislation and, and honestly, some of the interior motives of oppositions uh, that could exist from from the state side. You know, I think it should be noted that there are certain offenses, uh, specifically in California, the four exclusions are domestic violence battery and domestic violence battery with injury. Any offense what requires an individual to register as a sexual registrant pursuant to 290 and then some stalking-related offenses. 
Why do you think that those were the areas of exclusions that ultimately stuck with the legislators? I think when it comes to misdemeanors and looking at um, the pedalum of seriousness that we have, I think especially domestic violence cases are ones that uh, prosecutors go really hard on. I think that with those charges typically comes some sort of violence and you know, what they would view as an actual threat to public safety. And so, you know, I can't speak to why those specific ones, but I would imagine it's just the nature of the offenses and um, them not wanting essentially these cases to go away so easily. Uh, yeah, I think that's a fair point. And, and most of the time, I think these are tough cases to to navigate through. I think I would like to see maybe the the simple domestic violence battery offense potentially be evaluated because that again it's not without it's not really justifying but like that a, a quick snap of the moment from either you know any kind of spouse it can happen you know we've seen it in in one year relationships one month relationships 20 years relationships where you know something just so overly frustrating happened and you know again that's just a type of conviction that you know it has a perpetual collateral offense and and it really could just be a, a brief moment and so th those those are tough i definitely agree um dv cases are tough i think or are the hardest for families especially because a lot of these cases the prosecutors are asking for restraining orders so that person even when they're married for 10 years these prosecutors are asking for full criminal protective orders which means that this individual can't live with the, their spouse they have to move out that same day they can't see their children or if they want to see their children they have to go through family court which which is a whole other you know traumatizing experience for everyone involved and so i agree with you that i i don't necessarily think that dv charges on their face should be automatically excluded i definitely think like everything in the criminal system nothing is black and white um nothing should ever be black and white because there are always exceptions to the rule right there are also always limitations to someone's ability to, you know, comply with a criminal protective order, even though some charges like like violating criminal protective order is black and white, there are circumstances that aren't so black and white, you know, I think with this legislation, it, it brings back the humanity in people. Um, it brings back, you know, why people may act a certain way or do a certain thing. And I think by having these explicit offenses be essentially disqualified from benefiting um, is really to the detriment, I think, of what the overall goal and intention for this legislation is. But it's better than nothing, I guess. Definitely better than nothing. But again, yeah, a great point, because yeah, you, you hate to see these these type of black and white exclusions. It would be so much better to at least allow judicial discretion on the on the matter, which you know we're about to get into because there was a critical component of this legislation where we saw judges really exercising their discretion in a way that they interpreted the law differently. And so I think that you could adhere that same ideology across the board because at the end of the day, and again, I'm not 
trying to minimize the conduct, but we're talking about misdemeanors, right? Misdemeanors in their in and of themselves, even legislatively speaking, are less serious than felonies, right? You can't get a strike prior on a misdemeanor. There aren't any things really designated as serious or violent misdemeanors. You know, there's a maximum, there's a cap as the maximum exposure on a misdemeanor. And so all of these things, I think to me, are intuitive that misdemeanors are seen in a different scope and lens than felonies. And you could still accomplish that distinction by allowing at least everything up for judicial discretion. Right. Especially if you're going to take everything by a case-by-case basis anyway, right? Why not take those cases on a case-by-case basis as well? Because uh, there are different ranges to conduct, even though they're, you know, uh, a DV battery or DV assault or stalking. Like I said, it's not black and white. It's it very much should be case-by-case. So Michelle, the last thing that I want to get into is after, you know, we've established the diversion, different types, how one could get their case on diversion, and the hardships or the backlashes that we faced. How can those who are in the face of that pushback and in the face of that adversity to get their matter on diversion, what are some of the things that they you could see them doing or that you know that they could do to help overcome that and, and actually obtain success? In regards to getting diversion granted, yeah, in spite of having the pushback from the court and the prosecutor. Uh, well, character letters, character reference letters is something that I ask my clients of, you know, I want to build a picture or a different storyline of who this client is. Who is this person outside of the four corners of the police report? Are they a brother? Are they a sister? Are they a father? Are they a daughter? You know, who's their childhood best friend? And it may seem irrelevant, but like I said, this these legislators have intended diversion to bring back that human element that I think we've gotten lost in our system. And so um, for me, I like to tell my clients is to paint a picture as to who you are, who's your boss, where do you work? What does your day-to-day look like? You know, all of this information allows the judge to see past the charges, to see past the allegations, um, to see past, you know, this horrendous criminal history that the prosecutor loves bringing up every chance they get, you know, who is Bob Smith? Um, And so that's how I approach my cases. And that's how I tell my clients too. And I think that just goes into being able to interview your clients really well and build rapport with them, build a relationship. And then from there, you know, if, if it is anger management that they struggle with, if they are impulsive, okay, what resources are available to us to address that, to acknowledge that, to say, look, judge, yes, I know that I acted out of anger, uh, out of impulse this one time, but this isn't my usual self. I just have never learned how to cope um, with, you know, these issues that I have. If it's simply they were there at the wrong time, wrong place, maybe they hang out with a bad group of people or they have, they succumb to peer pressure easily, you know, maybe volunteering in the community, uh, maybe showing that they're enrolled in school or that they're, you know, applying for jobs, all of these things I think can help uh, really broaden the scope of viewing this person for more than the charges in the case number. I think 
uh, and this just goes to a more general viewpoint that I have that it really, really, really matters who's running, you know, the DA's office, you know, it, that makes a whirlwind of difference. Who's up on the bench, which judges do you have in courtrooms? And I'm hopeful that people start paying attention to, you know, elections to, especially local elections, because those are what matters. Whether or not you have a great judge who takes all of this into consideration really makes a difference versus someone who may just be a prosecutor in a robe um, or a prosecutor who values rehabilitation over convictions. That makes a world of difference because if a prosecutor is not opposed to diversion, you better believe that a judge isn't going to deny your motion for diversion, right? And so Unfortunately, and this is what I also tell my clients and that I have to tell myself too, is we can do all of these things, but if you have a prosecutor who's just after the conviction or you have a judge who can't really look past the police report or the complaint or doesn't really care about, you know, actually helping your client get back on track you know, what else is there for us to do? I love what you said about highlighting who the person or human is that's outside of the four corners of the police report, because essentially that's all the prosecution and the judge know about that person. And if it's not those four pages of the instant police report, it's the four corners of the criminal history report. And there's so much to a person between just those two quote unquote books. So I really love that you did that, especially, you know, given what we do and and the type of clientele that we have, you know, the poor, the indigent, the people of color, those that, you know, so often are just brushed through the system inhumanely. And so it was really powerful that we have opportunities day in and day out to really highlight that there's this is a person who is standing before everybody. So I thought that that was really eloquently said. I also really liked what you said about how elections matter because that's one of the ways that I think that we overcome these hurdles and these obstacles is, is reaching out to your legislators. You know, if you're in a state or a jurisdiction that doesn't have diversion options or isn't implementing them the way that, you know, you believe your elected legislators would, like, let it be known, reach out to them, get that message across, advocate for different types of legislations, you know, you know, in particularly if you wanted to see, you know, DUIs diverted, or like we were discussing some of those misdemeanor DVs may be reevaluated. There are things that we can be changed. And as we've seen in the recent years of legislations, there are they are making those pushes. So hopefully that that's happened. And I think that there's also a creative way that attorneys have the power, uh, at least specifically in California, just this year, they revamped the penal code 1385, which is just all really the the ultimate say of discretion for a judge. And so if you're facing, you know, disqualifying or fence or or just a hardship of a criminal background, you know, you, you write a creative motion, write an original motion, get like Michelle was talking about, just different pieces of exhibit that can really demonstrate who, who the actual human is. And, and you never know what's, what's going to happen. You know, Michelle, any kind of final thoughts as it relates to overcoming the hump of pushback for diversion? Continue to show up and fight for what you think is right. Fight for your clients. Advocate to bring back that humanity. That's all we really can do day in, day out. Um, it has been great seeing this legislation 
uh, past. It's been inspiring. It's been motivating. But it also has been disappointing the way that it has been carried out thus far. Um, but it's still brand new. I'm hopeful that things change and that we maybe are able to shift the mindset uh, as to why we actually have this legislation and the impact it may have on people's lives. Well, Michelle, we, we really appreciate you being really passionate and vocal about this issue. You know, uh, one of the questions or the question that we always end each and every episode with is, you know, when you when you are so passionate about a certain topic or and you are so vocal about a certain topic, why is there a significance of taking that matter to the box? Because if we if we don't, no one else will. That's pretty much my philosophy in everything that I do. I think we have a system that is broken. Um, we have a system that has discrepancies um, and disproportionately affects certain people uh, a lot more and a lot greater. And I think that's not a well known concept to the public. Um, and so whenever I do see injustices and inequalities in our system, I make sure to highlight it and I get as much pushback, you know, as possible every single day. But if we don't roar, no one will hear us. And so I'm hoping that if we roar enough, we can start actually shaking the ground on some of this great legislation. Well, we really love your take it to the box mentality and the effort that you put in day in, day out. We appreciate you coming onto the show and uh, we hope to have you back someday. So thanks again for coming on. Well, members of the jury, that's our show and I rest my case. Be sure to come back next episode as we take another matter to the box. If you're a fan of the show, go ahead and subscribe. You can also find us on social media at Members of the Jury. If you want to be a guest or have any feedback, be sure to email us at lhursty at membersofthejurypod.com. Information in this podcast is provided as general reference work as a public service. The audience is advised to check for changes to current laws and to consult with a qualified attorney on any legal issue. The use of this material does not create an attorney-client privilege in any fashion with the podcast, the host, or the guest. This information is for educational purposes only, and no one affiliated with the podcast may be held liable for any decision made based on this information.